Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, November 12th, 2019, is a Matthew Mike Gladstein lecture and biography. In this talk, the National Constitution Center's Jeffrey Rosen speaks with Abby Gluck about what he has learned from decades of conversation with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So thank you, everyone. Good evening. Um, hi, Jeff. Good hi, to see Abby. you again. How are you? Um, let me just begin by telling Je- you, Jeff, and everyone, this is a beautiful book. As someone who has known Justice Ginsburg for 20 years and who worked for her, you read this book and you feel like she's here with us. She's not here, right? <laughs> you feel like she's here with us, but without the really long and awkward pauses that come in the middle of everything that she says. Um, so um, when, I, when I went for my interview with Justice Ginsburg uh, more than 20 years ago, somebody told me to not interrupt her, to wait until the silence is excruciating in between her sentences, then count to five as slowly as you can, <laughs> and only then begin to speak. So. Um, The book is about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, It's also about so much more. It's about law, it's about marriage, it's about work, it's about art. It just captures so much. uh, And it also captures her as a person because it captures somebody who's not just a big brain and impersonal cold stance, but someone who has so much warmth uh, and so many interests outside in addition to the law. So Jeff, I was hoping you could just start by talking to us about how this came to be, how you have 20 years of conversations with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You're invited to operas with her. You're invited to weekends with her. You made everybody jealous by becoming Ruth Bader Ginsburg's best friend. Um, And, uh, you know, how did this happen? Well, first of all, Abby, thank you so much for doing this interview. I've admired your work for so long, and it's just a thrill to talk to you. I need to say how excited I am that a bunch of people who are in the book are here tonight. My wife, Lauren, uh, my wonderful editor, Paul Golub, and my 93-year-old dad, Sidney Rosen. And I have to put in a plug for the fact that Dad's second book, uh, Understanding Ericksonian Hypnotherapy, is coming out in December. And please come back for a book party for that event uh, right here at the Historical Society. So it was pure serendipity, just amazing luck, that I fell into this extraordinary relationship with Justice Ginsburg. And it began in an elevator. I was a law clerk on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, clerking for another judge. And a few months into the clerkship, I was going up in the elevator, and coming down was Judge Ginsburg. She was coming down from an exercise class called Jazzercise. (laughs) And I think she was actually in workout clothes. But she is an extraordinarily formidable presence, as you can imagine, even in uh, workout clothes. And she maintain that sphinx-like silence that those who don't know her can mistake for remoteness. So I just felt like I had to break the ice. I didn't know what to say. So I blurted out, what operas have you seen recently? (laughs) I don't think I even knew that she was an opera fan, but I am. And I just asked uh, the thing I that came to my mind. Well, of course, that was 
the right question to ask, and she just came to life, and we immediately began chatting about operas and the ones we'd seen, and that continued throughout the Supreme, the, 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 uh, the, the term on the appellate court, and it began this wonderful friendship that has continued until this day. So it, the, the moral of the story is, don't take the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> so shortly thereafter, Justice Ginsburg is nominated to be Justice Ginsburg, and you actually have an important role uh, in this nomination story. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? You know, there was a time Justice Ginsburg was not the front runner uh, originally. There was this line that Bill Clinton had said that the women were against her. People thought she wasn't feminist enough. Um, and, you know, Jeff has a, a historical role in this story. A, a Zelig-like role that, again, was uh, sort of just uh, good luck and, and serendipity. I just started as the legal affairs editor of The New Republic magazine. And I had the extraordinary overconfidence of a 28-year-old. And I took it upon myself to rank the various candidates who were up for the Supreme Court uh, position. And as you say, isn't it amazing to think of now? But some women's groups were opposing uh, Judge Ginsburg, uh, both because they thought she was too moderate, and also because of her criticisms of Roe versus Wade. She thought that Roe came to the right result, but that it was decided too broadly. The court should just have struck down the extreme Texas law at issue, but not presume to make regulations for every stage of pregnancy. And also, and with great prophetic prescience, she thought that Roe was wrongly decided on grounds of the right to privacy of male doctors and women and that it would have been better decided under the right to equality. And we can talk about later yeah. how that uh, has proved to be prescient, and the court and the country have come around to her view. But she was not at the top of the list. So for this New Republic piece, I was able to report a story that had happened to me a few weeks before. I'd been to a lunch with the law clerks of the US Court of Appeals. And while I was there, they said that Justice Scalia had been there a few weeks before. And someone asked him, if you were trapped on a desert island for the rest of your life with Lawrence Tribe or Mario Cuomo, who were the two front runners for the seat, who would you choose? And without missing a beat, he said, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> So I reported that in the piece, and then I said, uh, you know, she's been called the Thurgood Marshall of the women's movement, and her nomination would be the most acclaimed since Felix Frankfurter, who turned her down for a clerkship on the grounds that he wasn't ready for a woman. Now we are. Now, I later heard from Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who'd been championing her nomination at the invitation of Marty Ginsburg, who was leading a quiet campaign, which I wasn't aware of when I wrote my piece, that Moynihan had just read the piece when he talked to President Clinton on Air Force One, and Clinton said, who should I nominate? And Moynihan said, there's just one name, Justice Ginsburg, Judge Ginsburg. Clinton said, the women are against her, and Moynihan was able to fax a statement by a, the dean of Harvard Law School calling her the Thurgood Marshall of the women's movement, and that put her over the edge. So she very generously, you know, credited me for uh, a minor role in all this, and that just uh, continued the correspondence, and it was just being in the right place at the right time. Amazing. Um, I love that Justice Scalia story. Uh, I want to talk more about Justice Scalia uh, in a little bit, because their relationship uh, so special, uh, a very, very odd judicial couple, and if ever there was a story of, you know, uh, love, indifference, uh, it's theirs. Um, but let's just talk about Roe, since you mentioned it, Roe versus Wade, the abortion case. Um, you talk to her about it later. Um, does she think that her vision uh, of Roe has been ensconced in Supreme Court uh, jurisprudence? Does she think Roe's in danger now? 
during most of our interviews over the years, I'd ask her the question that everyone wanted to know, will Roe be overturned? And repeatedly, she said, no, it's been reaffirmed by judges of all persuasions, and I think it's secure. The question had special poignance and, and was especially urgent after Justice Kennedy retired and was replaced by Justice Kavanaugh. So I asked her uh, just last, uh, well, first in, in 2018, right when Justice Ke Kennedy retired, will Roe be overturned? And she said, I am skeptically hopeful that it will not be overturned. Mm. And then I asked her that again last uh, uh, July, and she said, I remain of that view. I'm skeptically hopeful that it will not be overturned as long as Chief Justice Roberts maintains the center seat. She believes that it's so well ensconced in law that it will not fall, although she did suggest that it was all up to Justice Roberts, and I asked her whether Justice Kavanaugh would vote to overturn it, and she said perhaps not on some controversial issue. So she believes that it's up to Roberts at the moment. Um, but she did say also, I said, what would happen if Roe were overturned? And here's what she said repeatedly, that the burden would fall mostly on poor women. Because remember, she always stresses, if Roe were overturned, abortion does not become legal or illegal everywhere in the country. It goes back to the states, and each state can decide for itself what to do. So here in New York, there'd be no change. And in fact, the legislature might even provide more expansive protections for reproductive choice and more expansive protections for poor women in other states. But in red states, where there's already almost no access to abortion for poor women, because in many of these states there's only one abortion clinic, those uh, uh, abortions would not be available, and poor women would not have the funds to travel out of state to get abortions, and the burden will fall mostly on them. And Justice Ginsburg said in July when we last talked, so the poor must breed and the rich may have choice is, is, does this make sense as national policy? That was always her view. Amazing. Yes. Um, you know, part of the reason that feminists didn't like her position in Roe was that she took, always took this position that the way to get gender equality was to treat women and men equally, that there shouldn't be special protections for women, that there shouldn't be special protections for pregnancy, but the idea should be equality. So her litigation strategy, which wasn't always popular, was that she went with the men first, right? She litigated a series of cases where she took on the cause of men who weren't being treated equally for benefits that women otherwise would have received, right? And what was so interesting about that is that um, I think that that was more than just a litigation strategy. I think it's the way that she approaches relationships in her life. And she had this famous, amazing love affair with her husband, Marty Ginsburg. They were truly a marriage of among equals. I want to read something from the book that she said. It's so beautiful. She says, Marty and I lived together happily for 56 years. And on the division of labor in our household, my daughter was asked by a reporter soon after my nomination, well, tell me what life is like in your house. And she said, well, my father does the cooking and my mother does the thinking. <laughs> And then the justice says to Jeff, that was not true at all. Marty was the smartest man I knew. And um, they had such mutual respect. He did kick her out of the kitchen. That is a known fact. But um, she followed him to law school. She left Harvard early, finished at Columbia. He followed her to the DC circuit. You know, 
I don't think it's a surprise that one of her favorite cases that she argued is this Weisenberger case, which is one of her big cases from the 70s. In that case, it was a man who was suing to get Social Security benefits after his wife had died because he wanted to be a stay-at-home father and take care of his child. Uh, and a woman would have gotten those benefits. And that, to me, encapsulates you know, the way Justice Ginsburg sees her vision of equal relationships. And in the book, Jeff, you have so many stories about her vision of equal relationships. I wonder if you might want to share any of these. You have a beautiful story about a photograph. You have a story about your own wedding. Um, you want to talk about any of that with us? Everything that she does is based on her profound belief, she says so movingly, that generalizations about the way that men and women are cannot guide me in making decisions about particular individuals. And it's, it's an incredible empathy that she has. She sees everyone as an individual, and she's so tuned in. She's so incredibly tuned in to every interaction that, and she doesn't miss a trick, that she's just thoughtfully imagining how to treat people on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. So the, well, the story of, um, that Lauren and I uh, experienced when we got married was remarkable. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, after meeting uh, Lauren, agreed to marry us, uh, and she wanted us to send her sample vows. So she said, send them to me by 4 p.m. on such and such a date. So we were excited about the marriage and thinking about other things. We kind of forgot about it. At about 10 a.m. that morning, an email, uh, the justice is expecting your vows. <laughs> this is in the middle of the Supreme Court term, where she has some other things to, to, to worry about. So we sent the vows at uh, right before the deadline, 3 p.m. Uh, uh, I don't know, 3.30, 4 p.m., they come back with her edits and track changes. <laughs> and uh, we had used the sample uh, blessing that she had used in other ceremonies that ended with, Jeffrey, you may kiss the bride. And in her track changes, uh, marked, you know, Justice Ginsburg, uh, she'd crossed that out and written, Jeffrey and Lauren, you may embrace for the first kiss of your marriage. Aw. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> But it's not only an awe moment, but it's a sign. She's given this traditional blessing scores or you know, hundreds of times, and she's always thinking and editing and um, trying to imagine how to make things more embraceive, to use her incredibly beautiful word. That's the, my favorite word in the whole book, is her notion that our Constitution is always becoming more embraceive. And I said, what do you mean by embraceive? And she said, embracing the left out people, not just grudgingly, but with open arms. It's an incredibly powerful vision. And that notion of an embraceive society that treats people, men and women equally, is embodied in the story of the photograph, too. So I had this memorable experience. In 1997, the New York Times asked me to write an article about her. And the the cover of the magazine was this picture, which she loved and we used for the book. But she didn't want to talk to me for the piece. She had just been a ju justice for a few years. She thought it was too soon. She said, if you can wait until 2003, I'll give you an exclusive interview, but I can't talk to you right now. And I said, I really need a scene for the piece. You know how these magazine pieces work. So her unusual solution was to invite me to her chambers, to greet me briefly, to offer that I look around for as long as I like, and then simply to disappear. And then she said, bye, you know, stay as long as you like. So I'm sitting there with some embarrassment, kind of looking around, looking at the bookshelves and seeing books on civil procedure, but also on uh, gender equality and Art Nouveau pictures of Puccini and a picture of her and Justice Scalia on an elephant in India. It, you know, it's striking. And then suddenly there's a call from the car. The justice wants me to look at one picture in particular right by her desk. 
And it's a picture of her son-in-law holding her infant grandson, Paul. And she says, the justice wants you to know that that is my hope for the future. So in the chambers, I thought it's a kind of platitude about grandchildren are my hope for the future. But then I went back and read more of her speeches and thought and realized she was saying something much more profound. She was saying, when men and women take equal responsibility for childcare, then they will be truly equal, and that is my hope for the future. And she, that, that's her vision, and that's what she achieved with Marty, and it's incredibly inspiring. It's amazing you pulled out that word abrasive because I pulled it out too. Yeah. I, I was turning here. Uh, it just, it's so beautiful. I'm just going to read a few parts of this because uh, she tells Jeff. Jeff is interviewing her about all these things. And one of the things he asked her about was officiating, I think, at a same-sex marriage is where this quote comes up in the book. Um, he talks, she talks about officiating at her first same-sex marriage. And she says, quote, it's one more example of what I see as the genius of our Constitution. If I asked you the question, who counted among we the people when our Constitution was new? Well, not many people. Certainly I wouldn't count. Certainly not people who are held in human bondage. And not even most men, because you had to be a property owner as well. So think of what our nation and our Constitution have become over well now more than two centuries. And then she goes on and she says how the word equal wasn't actually in the Constitution until the 14th Amendment after the Civil War. And she says, the word equal becomes part of our Constitution in the 14th Amendment. So I see as the genius of our Constitution and our society how much more abrasive we become than we were at the start. Um, and I think there you get a sense of Justice Ginsburg, the titan of equality, but also Justice Ginsburg, this incredibly warm and loving person um, and the way she approaches the world. You know, I'm so glad you used the words warm and loving because it's not what people think of her on first meeting, that the, the very uh, stern uh, and formidable uh, figure in the elevator, or the fact Marty used to say, you know, people think that my wife is a cold fish, but she just isn't. Mm -hmm. And you have to know her. You have to, she, but because but it's, and, and so let's talk together about what, how to reconcile the extreme boundedness with the astonishing empathy and warmth. And I think it must be that she's so incredibly disciplined about reserving all of her energies to focus entirely on the task or relationship at hand. When she's with you, she is completely tuned in and present. And those long pauses in the interviews, and I've experienced them on stage. When you interview her, you have the same rule. And if we were talking, you know, you'd ask me a question and <laughs> we would cover a lot less ground than Jeff and I are covering it, right now. You have to go much longer than you're comfortable with. But you must wait because after that pause, she's going to say something extraordinary. It's in the pauses that you learn to wait. And I finally asked her about the pauses in an interview, and she said, well, I learned to think before I speak. <laughs> <laughs> and she really is. And it's, uh, so that's my experience, is just that she, she's not one for idle chit-chat. Uh, which is why she loves to talk about opera because it means something to yeah. her, but she's not going to talk about sports, which she doesn't care about. And uh, and she's and that's why she's such a deadline enforcer yeah. and an astonishing copy editor. Paul, my editor, is an amazing deadline enforcer. He's the, I would say he's the greatest deadline enforcer of any editor I'd ever worked with until RBG, who just uh, will expect that you turn something in when you say you will. And then I, I'm going to 
tell the story of the copy editing, which yes. is so incredible too. So, you know, she was ill last year and I'd sent her the manuscript in January and then she got ill and of course I didn't want to bother her and was like everyone praying for her speedy recovery. And then uh, in June, June 27th, the last day of the Supreme Court term, 10 minutes after the Supreme Court term ended, I got an email from her saying, I have the edits, they're ready, and I'll give them to you on Tuesday. And I came in and I said, how on earth did you find time for this in the middle of you know, your burdens and the Supreme Court and all the other projects you're doing? She said, I told you I have them and I, and I promised you I would and I'd like to meet my deadlines and I did them in the back of cars and you know, when I was at the movies. And every page of the manuscript is marked up in her beautiful penciled script. That extra, can you imagine, friends, just the self-discipline that this extraordinary heroic woman has with the burdens of the world on her, with just with the discomfort of recovering from her illness, so focused. And 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 then the, her uh, assistant told me when I went in to see her that just a few weeks earlier, it had been a birthday celebration for one of her clerks, and. Uh, she's working on an opinion and the clerks and uh, friends are gathered in her chambers and there are about 30 people in the room and she's so incredibly focused on the task at hand that she looks up and she hasn't realized that the room is filled with people. <laughs> so this is why this extraordinary heroic woman is just such a model for me about how to live, about how to be completely focused and tuned in and attentive and thoughtful in every meaningful relationship that you have and preserving all of your precious energy for the service of others. And that's why I'll, I'll stop now, but it's such an, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I must ask you about your experience, but that's why she'll do things like when she represented Steven Weisenfeld, not only did she keep in touch with him afterward, she performed his wedding, she performed his son's wedding, she sends notes, she, she wrote a note, my, my mom passed in January, Sorry. and Justice Ginsburg is ill, and uh, the first time that she came out in public was for a performance of an opera about uh, two weeks uh, later, and she just handed a note expressing uh, empathy and sadness about my mom's yeah, passing. The dedication to the book is the is from that quote, I think, it, right? It's it, a beautiful. It's a beautiful note that she wrote. It's right in the front of the book, and I, I noticed it because it was. Um, so, I agree with everything you said. But 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 you but you tell us because you you're, you're working with her. Yeah. She's was she empathetic? Was she warm? Was she thoughtful? So, yeah. How did it work? Let me give you two sides to her. Yeah. So that really really reemphasize what Jeff just said. So when we clerked for her. We were scared of her, right? Um, and um, so she, she used to wear this Dolce & Gabbana perfume. She still wears it very, very powerfully. We were so frightened of her that when she was coming down the hall, we could smell her before she arrived. <laughs> and we were just coming, you could smell the perfume. Would so to this day, uh, and she actually gave all the women lock clerks the Dolce & Gabbana perfume. So I wear it, but sometimes I wear it and I get nervous. Because <laughs> I, I, I have this sort of Pavlovian response to the smell of the Dolce & Gabbana perfume. Um, but we used to, uh, there were four law clerks, and we used to actually read each other's, everything we gave to her was read by all four of us before it went to her. Because she was such a scrupulous copy editor and so disciplined in everything she did that she demanded that of us, and she made us make sure that our work was, you know, perfect and that we stood behind it. And at the time, it was very scary, but what she also gave us was a confidence that when we did something, we knew we did it right. And so 
you know, in retrospect, it was an amazing life lesson. Um, and, and everything you say in the book about her incredible work ethic and her focus is exactly true, but as is her warmth. And I could give you so many stories. I'll just give you one. Uh, my daughter's name is Ruth. My mother's name is Ruth. So it's, it's not after Justice Ginsburg, but it's a lovely coincidence. Um, and when I visited the Justice, we had a long conversation about law, the Supreme Court's term, last year. And then as I'm leaving, she said, oh, just a minute. And she walks over to her bookshelf. And she has a huge stack of things, books. Can't spell truth without Ruth, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg coloring book. And she had put all these things aside for my Ruthie, remembering that I happen to have a seven-year-old daughter named Ruthie, and that she's getting all of these things that she can't keep, and she's remembering that she knows somebody with a daughter named Ruth, one of her law clerks from 20 years ago. She puts them in the corner and had them ready for me to give to my daughter. And it's just one of so many examples um, of her warmth and her genuineness, and that she can be focused entirely on the term, but also be focused on the person. So, you know, I want to talk about the court, and I, I want to talk about another relationship, uh, the Justice Scalia relationship. Um, you can't talk about, the Justice loves the court. Um, her most important relationship, I think, on that court was with Justice Scalia for a long time. Um, they travel together, they, their spouses cook together, they do New Year's Eve together. He watched her parasail in France. They did ride those elephants in India and the pictures are everywhere. And you may not know there's an opera that's called Scalia Ginsburg that was written by a law student at the time, the University of Maryland. And it tells their relationship and their opinions in the opera. And Justice Ginsburg in the book, uh, quotes from one of her favorite arias in the book, um, and I'm going to read it and say what she said to you and ask you what you think. Um, she says, we are different. This is from an aria. And she said this is her favorite aria, except for the one that was cut, where she was supposed to break through a glass ceiling in order to rescue Nino Scalia. So that was one of the... <laughs> I wish that had happened. That would have been amazing. That was, uh, that was one of the cut scenes from this opera. So this is her second favorite aria. Um, it goes like this. We are different. We are one. The U.S. contradiction. Separate strands unite in friction to protect our country's core. This is the strength of our nation. This is our court's design. We are kindred. We are nine. And then she looked at you, Jeff, and she said, we revealed the Constitution and the court. The idea that there are two people who interpret the Constitution differently, yet retain our fondness for each other, and much more than that, their reverence for the institution that employs them. And what do you think about that? I think that said so much about her relationship with him and her view of the court and the country. Completely so. That was one of the great evenings of, of our many interviews, that was one of my favorite because I got to play Name That Tune with Justice Ginsburg uh, after a performance of the opera. And the opera jumps off of the anecdote uh, from that New Republic piece. The shtick is that they're both trapped on a desert island together, and the only way they can escape is by agreeing on a common constitutional philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they pl the, 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 the performance was playing, and I love the fact that she came into the music of Carmen, and, and he sings a lot of Puccini, and there's some Gilbert and Sullivan, and some uh, Purcell, and, and all that. Um, but she recited that from memory, because it was so meaningful to her. And the point is that there are some things that are more important than ideological disagreement. She used to say about him, you know, I love him, but he drives me crazy, because, uh, and we disagree so much, but he also just made her crack up, literally laugh out loud. And seeing her, Marty would do that. 
Right. You just see them. And she just, you know, she doesn't, she, she actually has an excellent sense of humor, but she's sort of wry and telling her own jokes. But she just was, he, she would really, uh, she said he, she would shake with laughter because uh, Scalia would uh, tell jokes with her. And they did have these New Year's together where they, he would sing around the piano. Uh, he once brought in two uh, colleagues and he called it the famous three tenors uh, routine. <laughs> routine. <laughs> and they had some very serious disagreements. She was... Uh, she she was outraged is the word over Bush v. Gore, yeah. and I wrote the angriest piece I've ever written. And she, you know, it was the New Republic disgrace, and she signed it with indignation because she just couldn't believe it. But he called her right after the decision came down and said, Ruth, you're still at work. You're still in the chambers. The best thing you can do is to go home and have a hot bath. And she said, good advice, which I promptly followed. And they did keep up their friendship. And that word about reverence for the Constitution and the institution, that was more important to both of them than the fact that they may have disagreed in particular cases, even though they did agree in, in some other ones. And uh, and the fact that he used to call her his favorite liberal, you know, and that was on the lower court, right. was just the tremendous respect he had for her as being guided always by her best vision of the law and being a being a, a true judge. And she respected him for that too, even though they strongly disagreed. So it's such a model in this terribly polarized time when both sides seem so unable to achieve common ground. They sustain their friendship until the end. And she was so upset when he passed. She said, I always thought that I was supposed to go first. Because she was older. She was older, right. yeah. Um, how about Justice O'Connor, the other woman on the court? Um, some fascinating stuff in the book about her. Um, what, what was your impression of the way, what she learned from Justice O'Connor, what Justice O'Connor's influence was on her? I hadn't realized how significant a relationship it was. And I think she or a biographer said it was her most important relationship when she joined mm -hmm. the court, uh, both in terms of being the only two women, and they had to lobby together to have the first women's restroom uh, put in uh, because there was only one before that. Um, J Justice O'Connor gave her uh, advice about how to deal with Chief Justice Rehnquist. She said he really cares about getting stuff out quickly, so turn in your homework fast or else you'll get boring assignments. And Justice Ginsburg determined always to be the first, and after that she would always win the competitions for who turned her opinions in for and she developed this incredibly close relationship with Chief Justice Rehnquist, which is very surprising to read how warm it was. She said she came to love him uh, because she thought he was so fair and he changed his mind and having previously opposed her in the gender equality cases, he came around and voted with her in the Virginia Military Institute case, uh, striking down segregated all male and all women military academies. Uh, but there, and it was Justice O'Connor, we both were so impressed to yeah. learn, who, Chief, Chief, Chief Justice Rehnquist wanted to give O'Connor the VMI opinion, and O'Connor said, no, this should be Ruth's. That's how much O'Connor was thoughtful, realizing that the great advocate of gender equality, although she was more junior, uh, had to write the uh, opinion. And Justice Ginsburg also says that the most significant change to the Supreme Court, the one that helped transform her role on the court, was when Justice O'Connor left us, as she said. In 2005, Justice O'Connor retires, and Justice Ginsburg said, think of all the decisions that would have come out the other way. Citizens United, uh, the campaign finance case, Shelby County, the voting rights case, affirmative action, all of these are cases that 
switched after Justice O'Connor left. So it was, they were very different. The you know uh, New Yorker and the Arizonan ranch uh, girl who grew up on a ranch, but they were obviously incredibly close. When you were there, how did they interact? You know they they were close. They I didn't really appreciate this relationship as much until I saw the book. I mean, they were always close. They were the two women on the court. Justice Ginsburg never failed to talk about the importance of that bathroom. I mean, the symbolic, the symbolism of the fact that there wasn't a women's bathroom near the bench for all of the years that Justice O'Connor was the only justice on the court. And when Justice Ginsburg came, one of the things that they did was to build a bathroom. And Justice Ginsburg always says, we made sure it was exactly the same size <laughs> as the men's bathroom. Every dimension was exactly the same because, of course, that comports with her view of equality. Um, I, you know, I want to emphasize that VMI story because the Virginia Military Institute case was Justice Ginsburg's first really big and important gender equality case as a justice. She was only on the court for three years. She got that very big majority opinion, uh, you know, outlaws same-sex uh, only public education. Um, and I never knew that the reason she got that opinion was that she wasn't actually given it, right? Justice Stevens gave it to Justice O'Connor, and Justice O'Connor said, give this to Ruth. And I just think that that is a beautiful um, testament to their relationship and what a mentor she was to her. Um, and I, you know, I also think it was a very difficult time for Justice Ginsburg when she was the only woman left on the court, which was for quite a while. And there's a, there's a quote in the book I want to read. Um, first, she tells the story of how, without fail, every single term, somebody called her Justice O'Connor, and somebody called Justice O'Connor Justice Ginsburg, even though they looked absolutely nothing alike. <laughs> you know, the National Association of like Women Judges had t-shirts made for them that said, I'm Sandra, she's Ruth. I'm Ruth, she's Sandra, that they used to wear for workouts um, because it was so ridiculous. But so she tells the story, and then she says in the book, the worst times were the years I was alone. The image to the public entering the courtroom was eight men of a certain size, and then to see this little woman sitting to the side. That was not a good image for the public to see. But now with three of us on the bench, I'm no longer lonely, and my newest colleagues are no shrinking violets. And, you know, if I could tell the story of the strip search case, there's one case that is recounted in the book um, that's a really important moment. Um, in 2009, I think it was, before the other women were on the court, Justice Ginsburg was the only woman. There was a case about a 13-year-old girl who was being strip searched for having contraband ibuprofen in her backpack at school. Um, and the oral argument uh, got very messy with the eight men on the court sort of joking around about what happens in the locker room, wedgies and versus Breyer saying stuff about boys putting things in each other's underwear, and it was getting kind of out of control. And Justice Ginsburg just bursts out and says, that is not how a 13-year-old girl would experience a strip search, right? And she's the only woman. And I think at that moment she realizes that I'm the only woman here. And I have to say something, and I have to bring my perspective, even though her way is not to be that way, even though her way is to be collegial, and her way is to be incremental, and her way is not to throw bombs. Um, that, I think, was a very important moment. She ultimately brought all of them onto her majority opinion, which she didn't write, but she brought all of them her way in that case. Um, and I think that was a, a really uh, symbolic moment for her. Um, can we talk about Notorious RBG? Of course. Yeah, uh, you want to I, I wanted to ask you yeah. um, and think through together 
uh, the important question is what made her the notorious yeah, RBG? Yeah, right. Because we both, when we both met her, uh, I in 1991, uh, and you uh, 2005, yeah. she was still, two, 2000, your term 2003. was? 2003. 2003. She was still the, the judge's judge, the minimalist, the judge who was most known for specializing in civil procedure, which she taught not only at Columbia, but in Sweden, the particularist. You would not have thought of her as a crusader. And one thing the book tries to do is uh, imagine what transformed the judge's judge into the notorious RBG. And I asked her about this around the time that the meme that the NYU law student started in 2013 in response to the Shelby County dissent where Justice Ginsburg had that incredibly memorable statement about, you know, just because you're not getting wet in a rainstorm doesn't mean you throw out the umbrella. And that began the transformation into the, uh, the, the celebrity and icon that we know today. And I said to Justice Ginsburg, why did you change? And she said, oh, Jeff, I didn't change, the, the court changed, and my role changed. She said the court changed when Sandra, Justice O'Connor, retired in 2005, and my role changed in 2013, I think. That case. When, when Justice Stevens stepped down. Stepped down. Right. Um, Justice Stevens, and then, then she told me a story about uh, how, reminding me about how the court works, and this procedural fact she thought was crucial in her change role. So... After the justices hear cases, they just heard the DACA case this morning, the really important uh, 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 DACA President case. President Obama's immigration, the Dreamers, the Dreamers case. The Supreme Court heard it this morning. Um, what, every week the court sits on Wednesdays and Fridays. After the arguments, they'll go into their private conference and go around the table and vote. And they speak in order of seniority, with a chief justice is considered most senior, and then the next most senior justice, and then they all vote. If the chief is in the majority, in other words, if he's one of five votes, he can either write the decision himself or assign it to the just, just, justice who best reflects his views or who might be on the fence and he wants to keep on his team. If he's in the minority, then the senior associate justice uh, in the majority is a shadow chief. She can write the decision herself or assign it to the judge who best reflects her views. So you see how important it is to be the senior associate justice. When John Paul Stevens had that role, Justice Ginsburg told me, he kept all the good opinions to himself. He liked to, yeah. you know, he'd like to write, write all those big dissents. When she became the senior associate, she both uh, parceled out the decisions more, but also thought it was important for the liberal side to speak in one voice. So she would write the principal dissent and encourage all the others to converge around it. And she felt much freer as the senior associate justice to be the liberal leader of the opposition in the same way that Justice Scalia had played that role uh, under President Clinton. And she felt just the simple fact that she became the assigning justice freed her up to speak in her own voice. And as a result, her opinions are transformed. If you compare the very first decisions, and even the ones you worked on your term, they're incredibly careful, they're precise, she quotes other judges, suddenly she's speaking in her own voice. Mm. And she turns out to be an incredibly powerful writer who's coming up with these aphorisms and metaphors and is speaking with barely concealed indignation in cases like the Carhartt partial birth abortion case where she finds Justice Anthony Kennedy's abstractions about how women may come to regret their decisions to have abortions to be paternalistic and stereotypical in the extreme. So she says it was just the role. It's, I think that she 
gained new confidence as she found the voice that she had expressed as an advocate and had suppressed for so long because she thought her role as a judge required it is finally uh, expressing itself and the two roles are converging and she's becoming, she's apotheosized into this extraordinary powerful voice of the constitution, a voice of principled liberal constitutionalism that she hadn't had before. So that was my venture. What do you think? What do you think the role of her being the only woman on the court was and do you have an alternative explanation? So, you know, we're going to get to Q&A, but I, I want to make sure that we're talking about this transformation, Notorious RBG. When I was clerking, you know, it wasn't as cool to clerk for RBG as it is now. My RBG stock has gone way up, right? Because, you know, people now think, you clerk for Justice Ginsburg. And when I got the job, yeah, it was great. You're clerking on the Supreme Court. But she wasn't viewed as this icon. And so now, look, I'm wearing RBG socks, okay? <laughs> and I've got an RBG pin that my husband got at a hardware store in Manhattan for me, right? So these, you know, I have a lot of other props that I didn't bring. But there's, you know, it's amazing what has uh, happened. And... Um, I do think an important part of it is that the way the court functions that you just described, that it is very important to understand that the senior associate justice, the justice in the liberal minority, gets the opinions. When I was clerking for her in 2003, she didn't get the big opinions. We just told you that we got BMI, she got BMI at it from the generosity of a senior justice, Justice O'Connor. She didn't have those opportunities. And she has, I, heard, I have heard her say that she does keep those big opinions for herself because it's her time and it's her due. She should have them. Um, I saw Notorious RBG coming out in 2007. Uh, that, that, when that Carhartt case came out, the partial birth abortion case, um, I read the dissent and I said, whoa, this is not the Justice Ginsburg that I know. And I called my co-clerk I said, have you seen this dissent? This doesn't sound anything like another Justice Ginsburg opinion. Um, and she said in this dissent, I, want, I pulled up her language out, he said, Justice Kennedy's way of thinking reflects ancient notions about women's place in the family and under the Constitution, ideas that have long since been discredited. And then she told you, Jeff, that opinion said a woman would live to regret her choice. There wasn't any, this was not anything this court should have ever thought or said. Adult women are able to make decisions about their own lives no less than men are. So yes, I thought the court was way out of line. It was a new form of big brother must protect the woman against her own weakness and immature misjudgment. And I think that, that was notorious RBG. The same one we saw really as a senior associate justice. And just she's still the only woman on the court at this point. And just a few months later, she decides another major discrimination case called the Ledbetter case. It's an equal pay case. She's eight to one. She's in dissent, eight to one, saying that the court has dramatically misinterpreted the Civil Rights Act to allow this woman's equal pay claim to be shoved off due to time, too much time passing. And then she, in her dissent, it's a blistering dissent, and she says to Congress, the ball is in your court. I can't talk to these guys anymore. Show us that they were wrong. And she tells you, and Congress said they were. And the very first act that President Obama signed a few months later was the Lilly Ledbetter Pay Act, Equal Pay Act of 2008, that turned that eight to one dissent, Justice Ginsburg dissent, into the law of the land. So I saw my notorious justice then, um, and I see her still now. Um, there's so much to talk about, but we're going to go to questions. Um, so do you want to pick the questions, or do you want me to pick some questions from the audience? You should pick the questions. Um, okay, I'm just going to look at this. Um, so, Jeff, why do you think Justice Ginsburg is such an iconic figure across multiple generations? 
Well, I've learned uh, from her and others that young women look up to her because they think she's such a boss. You know, the, 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 um, some, uh, the woman who started the Tumblr blog said, you see this you know, frail older woman and she's just breaking stereotypes. You don't ordinarily think of someone of that age with such power and confidence and they're just inspired by her extraordinary achievements. And then uh, older women and men yeah. uh, are recognizing that this is one of the most important figures for constitutional change of our time. This is a living legend. How many justices, can it be said, transformed the Constitution before they joined the Supreme Court? Two in the 20th century. Thurgood Marshall for African Americans and racial equality, and, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg for gender equality. And to, to realize that we're living in the presence of a legend who will rank with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and, and great 19th century figures, Frederick Douglass, how many characters are there in American constitutional history who because of their vision, because of their vision, transformed our understanding of the Constitution is simply overwhelming. And then you add to that the fact that she's become you know, the, the voice of liberalism in a, on a very contested, divided court, and that um, it, that, that would be enough, Dayenu, as we say, you know, that, so far so good. Yeah. But to, to add, all, to, you know, if that's not enough, she's also just such an extraordinarily inspiring human being in terms of life lessons about how to live. What I hope you get out of this, you knew, you know that she's a hero. You know that she transformed the Constitution. What you may not know, and what I didn't know until I had the privilege of talking to her, is just what a, a model of how to live she is. Just the, the warmth, the empathy, the incredible self-discipline. And for me, the most incredibly inspiring thing is her insistence that every moment of the day, we master unproductive emotions like anger and passion so that we can focus on productive work. She often tells the story, and I asked her about this, about how her mother would tell her, to overcome unproductive emotions like anger. They're not useful. Uh, I said to Justice Ginsburg, that's the lesson of the great wisdom traditions. Yes, she said. It's very hard to achieve in practice. Yes, it is. Well, how do you actually do it? And she said, because I realize if I don't overcome those emotions, I will lose precious time for productive work. So I think of that all the time, you know, you, you, every moment of the day there's a temptation to get impatient, to lose your temper, to surf uh, cat videos instead of reading about Supreme Court history. And it's a moment by moment choice about how are we going to spend our time. And I think WWRBG do, what would she do? And I try to, and no one achieves it as well as her, that heroic effort, which is the advice of the Talmud and the New Testament and Aristotle and all of the great wisdom traditions to just master your passion so you can focus on others and spread light. That's what. That's why she's my hero. I'm just so lucky to have known her. I think you know. I think she's also a real model for strength uh, for women. There's a great line in this book. I never heard her say something like this, where she says, "Justice O'Connor told her it's important for women of our age." to get out there and make a good show of it, right? And she's shown a way to be strong to a very 
advanced age. Um, there's another line in the book where she claims that she can do more chin-ups than any justice <laughs> on the current court than Neil Gorsuch. I mean, these are like eight 50-year-olds, okay? So that's an extraordinary, that's an amazing line. But she's, yeah. she's, she's so tough um, and she's been through so much and she doesn't take off a day. I mean, I, I just this weekend, I was, I was somewhere with a friend's mother who's not a Justice Ginsburg fan. I mentioned I had to leave to prepare for this and I was leaving a reception and she happened to uh, just be recovering from hip surgery and she had a cane and she said I love Justice Ginsburg she's so tough you know yeah. I'm, I'm coming back from surgery I mean so people are inspired by her strength um, and they're inspired by not only her work ethic but you know her discipline and and you know her, her physicality in a lot of ways and why do you think she's a hero to women well, I think so. Why do you think she's a hero to women in particular? Um, to women now? Yeah. Um, you know, um, I think if you look at her whole biography, which wasn't really known, she should have been a hero even before this notorious RBG. You know, she, born in Brooklyn, valedictorian of her class. Her mother passed away on the eve of her graduation from high school. She didn't get to be a valedictorian. Um, one of the only nine women in her Harvard Law School class, she was called into see the dean of her reception. And at the dean's reception, the dean says to her, Mrs. Ginsburg, why are you here taking the place that should go to a man? And she was so flustered that she said, so I could learn to talk to my husband better. A line that she, a horrible, like a horrible, shameful moment for her, right? And, you know, she overcomes it. She gets turned down from two cl clerkships, gets turned down from law firms, <laughs> gets tenure at Columbia Law School, you know, comes back from cancer, takes care of her husband, never stops. And I think that that whole biography is plenty inspiration beyond all of the amazing things that she has done and the, like the quotes that I have read. Um, I, I think there's more than enough to, to love there, but I also just think that she's owning it now. Um, she owns it, she has the attitude, she has the toughness. I think it's great. Um, speaking of toughness, thank you for the New York question. Somebody says, did Justice Ginsburg share any memorable stories with you about growing up in Brooklyn? Uh, no. <laughs> she, she, she didn't. I, uh, I, you know, I'll share, this is a, I didn't put this in the book because it was, uh, well, now I have to tell it, even though I didn't put it in the book. I, I, I reported it in, the, in one of the in the new in one of the New Republic pieces after she got in. There was a Brooklyn story about how, uh, when after she was nominated, someone faxed to the Senate the fact that when she was in Brooklyn at James Madison High School, that her nickname among some of the guys uh, was an ugly epithet, uh, bitch. And she read the facts, and she said, she thought for a second, she said. Better bitch than mouse. Mm. <laughs> there's, there's a Brooklyn story for you. <laughs> so, you know, so, um, you know, I think her Brooklyn, you know, if I think about Brooklyn with her, uh, I think about, there is a, actually, my daughter actually has a book about her as a child growing up. And one of the things in the book is that she was tried to be forced to take home ec. Um, when she was in public school in Brooklyn, and she insisted on taking Woodshop. Um, and and, she, and this, it's a whole story about how she actually winds up getting into Woodshop. And so I think it's a great uh, young RBG story. But I, I also think, you know, she is a Jewish woman from Brooklyn. And I, and I do think that um, she's not the most religious Jew, but she's definitely identified as a Jew. Um, and she has given, I have heard her give some beautiful um, speeches to Jewish groups. Um, she loves this line um, from the from the Torah: "Sedek, sedek, tirdaf, lamantik yek, 
Tiglech, my husband will correct me later the way I just described it. Um, it means justice, justice shall you pursue so that you may thrive, right? So she thinks about her the Torah, she thinks about her Jewish upbringing, and she's been pulling lessons, you know, from Deuteronomy in the Book of Judges about, you know, the role of justice, as you just referenced in those old books. Solomon uh, saying, God, g- g- give me the grace, the wisdom to judge this thy people, that I may be a wise judge. And she loves the sections about judges as well. And that tradition of justice, which is why one of her heroes is Justice Brandeis, who is also a secular right. Jew, but who deeply identified with the traditions of justice, learning, wisdom, and uh, and self-cultivation uh, of the Jewish I actually people. thought about her Brooklyn um, upbringing last term because she was only one of two justices who dissented in a case about the um, Bladensburg Cross in Maryland. Um, and it's one of the first cases in which you really saw her um, as a Jewish person uh, in dissent. Um, the dissent is pretty powerful um, in, in terms of talking about how as a nation a cross may mean, may some, for some people have a symbol of just a a wartime memorial, but for Jews and Muslims, it doesn't mean that. And uh, that was another different voice of hers that I, I saw coming through very strong and, and, and new. It was extraordinary. It was a seven to two case. She told me I was kind of disappointed that Sonia was the only justice who joined me, although I wasn't yeah. disappointed. Uh, she was sorry that Justice Breyer thought that they had crosses in San Francisco and therefore there was no big deal. And for her, a tremendous uh, uh, cross on public property could signify nothing but sectarian endorsement of her. I think in the she book she it. says, apropos of the question, Breyer says to her, well, maybe it's the difference between San Francisco and Brooklyn. <laughs> yes, right? absolutely. Okay, so, yeah. all right, another question. Um, were Justice Ginsburg's questions about Trump that she later called ill-advised out of character for her given her unprecedented record as an associate justice? Uh, uh, yes, it's the only occasion where she's really, uh, you know, blurted out her political opinions and she apologized for it and said she thought it was wrong and uh, it was a time when many people were uh, struggling to, with, this, with uh, an uncertain time. So yes, it was out of character. That's right. Um, Another question is, uh, did she talk to you at all about the right to bear arms or the Second Amendment in any of your conversations? We did not talk about the Second Amendment. That would have been a very good question. She loved Justice Stevens' dissent in the Heller case, but we did not talk about the right to bear arms. I think, you know, I think this is the two questions actually are kind of linked. Um, the last question about Trump, her public comments with Trump and the Second Amendment, because it can be very tempting for a Supreme Court justice to speak upon all matters of the day. And in the book, Justice Ginsburg does talk about opinions that she hoped would be overturned. Um, she makes, she, she thinks Citizens United, the campaign finance case allowing court, unrestricted corporate contributions should be overturned. She thought the health care case was a monstrosity. She made some comments about, um, non-disclosure agreements uh, when you asked her about the Me Too movement where she indicated that those might be unconstitutional. Um, And it can be ill-advised for a justice to make those comments because they can get in trouble or there can be recusal motions. And the court has an important Second Amendment case on the docket this year. And so uh, there are probably reasons why, you know, she might have thought prudent not to talk about some of that. The non-disclosure thing was a sign of the fact that she is very candid about her views and... uh, I hadn't actually noticed it in the book, and she had added it as part of her edits, that she thinks that uh, if these non-disclosure agreements go up to courts, she hopes that the courts will not enforce them. And there's a 
powerful argument that if there's duress in the making of these agreements, then they're unconscionable and shouldn't be enforced. But her willingness to say so is typical of the fact that she will uh, say exactly what she thinks. Yeah, when I read it, I thought, oh my goodness, why is she saying this? And, um, so I, I was surprised. But she does uh, she does say things. Everyone says things. and she, But she, can't, she was careful. Um, okay, so another question is... Do you have a sense of how she uh, perceives her, the portrayal of herself in the movie on the basis of sex? Was she happy with the portrayal? She loved the movie. Uh, she also loved, what was his name, Arnie? The, the, the guy who played Marty? Yeah. Was it? She, she, Arnie Hammer. Hammer. She thought he was very appropriate and she liked looking at him, she said. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and you know, you see, who's seen the movie? You, you, you know, go see it. And, you know, when she's walking up at the end, up the Supreme Court steps, returning to the place of her triumph, it's just such a glorious moment. Um, and she loved the documentary. And she uh, is getting her due. And it's wonderful to see her. Yeah, before you, uh, let me just read the one quote before to close. I have to. Yeah. My favorite quote in the book happens to be the last quote in the book. Uh, I think it shows her patriotism and her love of the country um, that comes through so beautifully and her optimism for the future. She says, I revere the court. For the most part, the U.S. Supreme Court has been exemplary, not only a model of our own country, but for the world, a model of the independence of the judiciary and of the obligation to reason why. Unlike the political branches of government, we must give reasons for our opinions. Hope springs eternal. I try to be as persuasive as I can in conference and in writing opinions. Sometimes I'm successful, sometimes not, but I will continue to try. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.